Amen. You may be seated. For our final sermon in the series, Mere Humanity, we have once again just a few readings from, from Scripture, First Psalm 122. This is one of the Psalms of Ascent. The pilgrims would sing on their way to Jerusalem during the three feasts of Israel's calendar. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Proverbs 11, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. And by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. Ephesians 2, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. By placing in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Be God. We pray, Lord, that you will mightily bless our hearing, more importantly, our living, of what this word is described in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, as you know, what prompted this series on mere humanity was I find myself looking out at a lot of young disciples. God has given us so many young disciples at Trinity. I'm looking at you guys, and I, what I see is I see young Christians who are living between a word that you've really just begun to learn and a world that you've just started to explore. Between the word of God and the world that God has made. And what I've tried to do in this series is we've just taken up 12 pieces of I call these pieces from the game board of human life, the game board of our humanness in the world. And we've just been trying to listen to the word of God about each of these pieces, to know what the word says, and then turn and assess how do you, how do you play these in the world? Like, how do you successfully play the game of human life in the real world? And the last piece that we've come to today is the iconic piece, the city. Now, can I ask you guys, does the word of God talk about the city? Can I give you the Bible and the whole Bible in a sentence? 
After humankind defied God with a tower and a city, God called a man. He turned that man into a family, turned that family into tribes, turned those tribes into a nation, gave that nation a land, then a king, then a royal city, then his own presence in the temple in that city. But after all of that was lost through disobedience, God then sent his son to be the living temple, God with us in flesh. And it was by his sacrifice that the veil between God and man was torn in two forever. And then God raised him from the dead to be the true king, who now by, the, by his spirit, by the Holy Spirit, he enters hearts and lives in all nations, and he makes them living temples like himself. And he builds them into a worldwide city of living stones, what the Bible calls a new Jerusalem, in which the dividing wall of hostility is broken down between God and man and between man and man. And we are reconciled to God in one body and are being built to be his dwelling place, as Paul says here. That is the city of God. That is the mission of God. And I'd like you to notice that God wants people to be unified. He does not want them to be separated and alienated and hostile. And notice also that he wants a unified people, a body. The movement of this unification is toward order. It's toward what Paul calls here a structure, a house, a city of an organized people. That's what the word says about the city of God. Now let's turn from the word and look out at the world. What do you see? Well, you see the cities of men. Some of them are megapolises, like the one that we live next to. But you see the cities of men in very tiny little organizations of people, the little villages and hamlets of the world. And within these cities, there are so many subunits of the city, however big it is. These little subunits of communities that make up the city. There's the neighborhood, there's the business, the school, the volunteer organization, other kinds of association. And what's interesting about the cities of men, as you look at them, whether great or small, they often have the form of unity without the reality of unity. In the cities of men, you will find the dividing walls of hostility between God and man and between men and each other those dividing walls often still stand. And so there's kind of a very poignant tension that you feel as you look at earthly cities. Because on one hand, just in the fact that they're organized cities, they beckon us toward this ideal of justice and peace and order and beauty. And, and that must be a justice and a peace. That ideal has got to come from beyond the city itself. It, the city is should be kind of conformed to that ideal. I mean, you, you see this in everything from Plato's Republic on up to, you know, Batman's Gotham. It's interesting that I was just rewatching Christopher Nolan's films. Interesting that Batman always has to wear a mask. He's never an actual identifiable man. He's always from beyond. He's always sort of above and beyond the city because the city beckons us toward this ideal of justice that is actually beyond the city itself. And yet, even as cities beckon us toward that actually toward God and what only he can, the order only he can bring, at the same time, cities, as you know, are often engines of just utter rebellion against God. Some of the most organized rebellion against God happens in cities. 
And on the horizontal level, there's that same sort of poignant tension. Because on one hand, you look at a city, a well-built, well-organized city, and it's a beacon. We might even say a haven of sharing resources and cooperation. And yet at the same time, cities can just be dens of oppression and hostility. These are the cities of men. Now, I want to speak to you guys between the word and the world. Here's the sentence that's what this whole sermon's about. As the spirit-filled people of Jesus, as the spirit-filled disciples of Jesus Christ, my brothers and sisters, you are the city of God in the cities of men. You are the city of God in the cities of men. God has reconciled you to himself. He has reconciled you to each other. But when God does that work of reconciling by the power of the Holy Spirit, when God is doing that work by the Holy Spirit, it will never just remain invisible in your heart. It will never just be something inside of your little soul. That unifying, reconciling work of God will manifest itself. It will take shape in our visible relations. And specifically what I want to talk about today, it will move you when God does that work in us by the Spirit, and he has, it will move us to invest ourselves in the communion of saints and the communities of our city. To invest in the communion of saints and in the communities of our city. Let me just talk a little bit now about the communion, the community of saints. Because I, this, I, I'm sure, will be obvious to you, beloved. If Jesus' people, if people reconciled to God cannot find a way to live together in thriving communities, then I want to ask you, what is the hope for the cities of men? If people who have been reconciled to God through Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, cannot find a way to live together in thriving communities, then what are we thinking about urban renewal on any grander level? If you and I want to be part of God's renewing work, and we do, in any other city, any other community, any other body of people, we must practice being the church. We must be the church. We must commune as saints. Now let's think about that communion of saints. At one level, the community or communion of saints, it just is. It is because God has done it. Do you notice in our confession of faith, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That is an article of faith. Do you notice that? How can it be an article of faith? It's not always an article of sight, because sometimes you look at the church, you're like, I don't know if it's one holy Catholic or apostolic. <laughs> you know, we kind of have on and off days. And certainly it's not something you can make happen. You, you and I don't make the church be one holy Catholic apostolic church. God has made that so. That is the work of God, so we can confess our faith in it. You and I, Paul says here, we are united to God by the Spirit. He says that in verse 18. You're not strangers and aliens anymore. You have access in one spirit to the Father. That wall's broken down. That just has been finished by Christ and by the work of the Holy Spirit. That is an accomplished fact. And he goes on in verse 22 to say, because we are united to God by the Holy Spirit, we are also spiritually and invisibly united to each other. Now, here's, I mean, here's the kind of weird metaphysical thing that I mean by that. Like, if God has given you his Holy Spirit, and by that Holy Spirit, you are united to God as your Father, and he's given me the same Spirit and united me to the Father, then that means you and I share a union that is 
It is, a, it, is, it is a bond that actually is beyond any other human bond. And it is real, although it's invisible. But you cannot read a page of the Bible and not see that God wants that spiritual, invisible communion to become visible. This is true in the New Testament as much as in the Old Testament. God wants that spiritual, invisible unity and communion that we have to manifest itself. And the Bible's pretty strong about this, actually. If a starving saint shows up at my door, and I stand there feeling our unity, I'm feeling the bond of the Holy Spirit, and I am praying for this brother, and I say, brother, be warmed and filled, and I do not manifest our unity by giving that brother bread, there's a question if I even have the Holy Spirit. If I'm out in the woods and I'm feeling my communion with the worldwide body of Jesus Christ, oh, I'm feeling it. From shore to shore, I'm feeling worship with the body of the saints, and I don't get myself assembled for worship with actual saints. The Bible says I am in sin. It is sin to neglect the assembling of ourselves together. God's spiritual city, which is real, it is to manifest itself in visibly shared worship, invisible strengthening of each other's faith, invisible meeting of each other's needs, being the church, not just in fact, though it is a fact, but in action. That is what the Bible describes, visible communion. And it's interesting, too, as you look at the Bible, this, this visible manifestation of the unity and communion of the saints it happens sometimes just very organically. I mean, if you were to go, let's say you're, you're in another country in a, where you don't even speak the language. You've heard people talk about this, and you meet someone, and somehow, you, even through the language barrier, you realize this person is a believer and follower of Jesus. There would be an instant organic connection with this person. You might be able to just fall down on your knees and worship together somehow, even if you couldn't speak the same language. There's, there's, Christians become friends wherever they are, and... Wherever you are, as you meet Jesus people, you know, there's this organic, visible friendship that, that just happens. But the, the union and community of the saints, it's not just organic, as wonderful as that is. It is also organized. Because the Bible talks about the church in so-and-so's house. Like that body of people who meet in that house. And the, the church in that city. Like the church of Ephesus is a thing. It's not the same thing as the church in Corinth or Philippi. There is both organic and organized visible communion. And in that more organized, like local church, that church in that place, those identifiable people, in that more organized way, the visible church reflects something that is woven by God deep into creation, and it's, and it's, it's this, that there are certain glorious things that happen only when people are organized. There are some there's some glorious stuff that will only happen when people are not just organically communing, but they are communing in an organized way. A tribe can do what a family cannot. A nation can do what a tribe cannot. An institution, an organized institution, can take the work of one generation and extend that work for generations to come. And it's no different in the church. I mean, I would love it if the Holy Spirit were moving in all of us such that, without any direction, we would all be hardcore greeters on Sunday. Like, people come in here, and we are just in greeter mode. We are in hospitality mode. We are, like, falling over ourselves to reach out to these guests and love on them and make them feel welcome and draw them into what God is doing in our midst. But the reality is that an effective church 
should probably have a greeter team who have some training, who are working consciously as a team because there's this, there's this weird thing in communities where what is everybody's job is nobody's job. And so organization matters. Now let me just give you some brief thoughts on how the communion of saints, visibly being the church, just forms us for other communities. Very interesting to think about this. One way that the communion of saints forms us for other communities is that it, it foregrounds it prioritizes worship as the foundation of community. What's the first thing God calls us together to commune together doing, beloved? What's the main primary thing God calls his people together to commune in? What is it? It's worship. It's not to have a barbecue. It's not to hang out. It's to worship. That's the first thing. There are other things, but that's the first thing. That's important. Because it's a reminder to us that all human community ultimately has got to be grounded in God. Why do we value every member of our community? Because they're made by God. Right? Like the, the, the reason we ultimately see each other as having inherent value and dignity is because God. Why are we able to be merciful to each other when there are offenses and injustices and wrongs and things that, I mean, we, we actually, at one level, should fight over those things because it's unjust and it's wrong. Why are we able to extend mercy? Because God. We're merciful because God has filled our hearts with mercy by his own mercy. Community, at its foundational level, needs God. And this is why what is sometimes called the social gospel. You guys ever heard that term, the social gospel? The social gospel is the idea we need to kind of forget about doctrine and theology and all those heavy things about kind of, you know, the deep stuff about who God is and exactly, you know, who, how Jesus is both God and man and kind of how God saves us. It's all that heavy, you know, arguing about the sacraments and, and you know, how church should be structured. It's all that theological stuff. What does it matter? What matters is activism. What matters is feeding the poor clothing the naked, you know, taking care of social issues. Let's put doctrine on the back burner, foreground activism. The only problem with that, putting human needs ahead of knowing God, is that it has just sought itself free of the only tree that can nourish and support it. Justice and peace in a community require a transcendent and above and beyond foundation beyond just human say-so. We don't just value people here because we just say so. We value people because they're valuable. We don't extend grace to each other just because we've decided to be gracious. We extend grace because God is gracious. And the community of saints foregrounds worship as the foundation of community. There's another thing that our communion of saints does. It prioritizes mission over consumption. Say it with me. I believe in one holy, Catholic. What is apostolic? What does the word apostle mean? An apostle is sent. That's what the word apostolos means, one who is sent. And so the church is not just called into worship. We are then called forth. We are sent forth on mission. The reason why God has created a church is to go make disciples. That, that is our mission. And as soon as you realize that's what we're actually about as a community, it helps you realize, man, we really kind of need each other. We need mutual equipping from each other. It's that, it's that mission that we're on together that mobilizes us somewhat urgency, urgently. Like, we need to help each other. We need to serve each other. We need to... 
build each other's faith. We need to stir one another up to love and good works. And, and it, it's that missional focus of the church. That's why we do not come to this community with the biggest question on our mind being, how is this going to improve my life? Like, where are the things that are kind of missing in my personal life? And I go find a church that supplies those things. That's not how real Christians approach the church. The question about, that we ask coming to the communion of saints is, how can we do this mission together? How can we do this mission together? I, I have some concerns. I'll be a little bit careful here, but one of the things that was wonderful coming out of COVID was live streaming. One of the things that was not so good coming out of COVID was live streaming. And let me explain what I mean. Because live streaming worship, now I'm thankful for this. Some of you today are being blessed by this and praise the Lord. And certainly where there are a community of saints receiving the word of God preached remotely, that's a wonderful blessing. These are things that God has done. But I have a little bit of concern, as many other spiritual leaders now do in the church. Because live streaming worship, live streaming church can become a kind of spiritual Netflix. It can give you the impression that you sitting on your couch with a remote are receiving streamable product. And that somehow is worship. That somehow is being the church. This is worship. This is being the church. The communion of saints. Not you on your couch streaming product. Are you with me? Not that God cannot bless you if you're sitting on your couch receiving a kind of communion. But we need to be extremely careful about not allowing ourselves to get into that mentality so easy for us in the digital 21st century that somehow church is product streaming to us. It's content as opposed to community, if that makes sense. There's a third way that the communion of saints prepares us, forms us for other communities. This is wonderful. It brings together binding commitment with broad Catholicity. Now, you know what I say, Catholicity. I don't mean Roman Catholicism. I mean the Catholic Church is the wide, broad, whole world dimension of God's church. And the communion of saints brings together both binding local commitment and that broad Catholicity. Now, think about any community you've ever been a part of. There's this basic tension in the community. And that is, how do you have strong, committed local bonds? Like, we are a thing, and we're committed to each other in this local thing without becoming insular and inhospitable and cultish and self-serving. Because you know communities, we are at our best when we're not inbred. And churches feel that tension. Churches can skew either way. You guys know this. Some of you told me stories. There are churches that skew toward that strong, committed local bond. And they just consume the resources of their members' personal lives. And they demand the resources of their people's personal lives. I remember talking to a brother some years ago who told me he got in trouble in, at his church because he was doing mercy ministry that wasn't run by the church. And they were frustrated with him because he was doing stuff that wasn't directly related to the local church. And I've had some of you actually ask me, can I, can I serve in another church? I'm like, of course you can serve in another church. But there are churches that skew toward, like, it's all about Trinity Church. Like, almost like you're not really the, being the church unless you're doing it in your local church. And that is just, that is just, that is imbalanced. But there are other churches, I'll be honest, I think Trinity is like this, that tend to skew in the other way, who so emphasize the organic fact that y'all are the church wherever you are. Wherever, you guys are the church, so wherever you are, you're being the church. 
And we just encourage and support you guys in being the church in your private lives. A church that skews that way can get to a point where they ask almost nothing in the local context. And so all the local work starts to fall on just a very few. And members in that kind of church can come to treat the local church not so much as contributors, like we have a mission together as Trinity Church, as this expression of the body of Christ, but maybe a little bit more as kind of consumers, except for the handful who kind of carry the burden. And I think a church can you know, go either way. I think we've probably sometimes been a little bit of a victim of our own success in encouraging organic, broad Catholicity, but sometimes that's created some challenges in just having more local commitment, as, as you guys know. But there's a balance here. At one end of the spectrum, you've got the, the program mill church. You guys, some of you have told me stories coming out of program mill churches. I mean, these, these churches just run people into the ground because you're at church every day doing church stuff. At the other end is a preaching post. There's not a church. There's a preaching post. People come for preaching, right? But the church is at its best, as any community is at its best, when it is robustly local. G.K. Chesterton said, anybody can go on a worldwide adventure. It's loving the people on your street that's the problem. But not just robustly local, robustly Catholic. I tell people all the time, I'm not recruiting for the Trinity Church team. I'm recruiting for the Jesus team. And if you're on the Jesus team, you're on my team, and I'm glad you're serving Jesus. That's the communion of saints. But now let me say something a little bit about the communities of our city. The communities of our city. So as citizens of the city of God, how do we relate to the cities of men? And I'd like to suggest that it's actually captured quite well in Psalm 122, verses 6 through 9 that we just read, where these pilgrims are praying for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, it's crazy to think about the fact that later, the prophet Jeremiah will tell the people of Israel when they're in exile in Babylon, pray for the peace of Babylon. Pray for the peace of your city. I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, for the sake of what God is doing in this place, I will seek your good. That is how Jesus' people relate to the cities of men. We pray for, we seek the peace of our city. I think that's what Proverbs 11.11 means when it says, by the blessing of the righteous, the city is exalted. Every city on earth should be better because Christians are in it. Amen? We seek and pray for the peace of our city. But what is the peace that we want for our city? Well, it is peace with God. I mean, we need to preach the gospel, because more than anything, we want people to know God, be reconciled to him through the finished work of Jesus Christ, his son. But it is also the case, this is a both and, that we seek peace among men, that the body of Christ should be invested in breaking down what Paul calls in Ephesians 2, dividing walls of hostility, in order that people together, as God made them to, can share provision can share protection, and can share a mutual purpose. We want to see people sharing provision, sharing protection, sharing purpose. That is part of the peace. That's one of the fruits that comes as God's people are in a place. But I think if you think about the church being invested in that, in, our, in the communities of our city, we, we, we do run up against a, a very big deficiency in our modern social imaginary, our modern kind of vision of what society is is kind of about. And that, that deficiency is this. I think when you and I, as North Americans today, think about the city and about peace and, you know, kind of communi large communities of people, our society, the big players in our minds basically boil down to three. You've got governments, what we call the state. You've got co big corporations, 
and you've got the self. Right, we're all working on ourself, our own little circle of this is me and my life and my interests, my lifestyle, my happiness, my gratification. And then we've got these big players, you know, the, the, the governments and corporations. What's interesting is that none of those three big players in our modern social imaginary can bring peace in a city. You cannot have peace in a city where everyone is living for self. You just can't. Corporations don't exist for peace. Corporations exist for profit. And governments, while they're absolutely necessary to referee relations where there are walls of hostility, and thank God they exist, they can't destroy those walls. Can a government make people love one another? Of course they can't. Peace comes as a people start actively sharing provision, protection, and purpose. That's what brings peace. And so the question I like to ask you young people and all of us is, where can you join, or if it doesn't exist, where can you build that kind of sharing in whatever communities God places you in? Where can you join in or build that kind of sharing of provision, protection, and purpose in the communities of your city? Where can you find a community where there's some tearing down of walls, some advocating for the vulnerable so they can be protected, some sharing of resources, whether they're material resources or educational resources or vocational resources. Where can you participate as people of God, people, citizens of God's city, in that kind of wall-destroying in the cities of men? And because that can still remain kind of floating up in the ether, let me just offer you as we wrap up five possible focal points for that kind of community effort, communal effort on the part of God's people. And if you're young, just want to encourage you, think about these, and there are lots more possible focal points. These are five we can think about, because these matter in the, the communities of our time, the cities of our time. One focal point would just be unvalued lives. Unvalued lives. It's Mother's Day, and I find myself thinking more and more, beloved, about the fact that we are living in a society that is devoted to self-gratification. And what happens in a society that is devoted to self-gratification is that over time, children are not wanted, the elderly are not wanted, and the infirm are not wanted. And we're there. I think we need to reflect as citizens of God's city on how we are going to prepare for what people call the coming demographic night. We are murdering our unborn and just not having children at such a rate now, we are not even going to be able to replace our population. And if you think that's daunting, that pales in comparison with the elder care crisis. We have millions of elderly people whom nobody wants to take care of, who have just been shuttled off to institutions, and that, in a graying society, pales compared to what is coming. The kinds of squalor and misery and neglect in which the gray-haired octogenarians of our society will soon be living because nobody wants to be bothered because they're too busy building their lifestyle. And I think we also should expect a rising active promotion of euthanasia. Because our society has no logic within it anymore to keep us from euthanizing those who don't serve a purpose. Unvalued lives, that's a focal point. Another, another focal point to think about. How can we work in our communities? The lie of sexual freedom. 
We live in a society that is devoted to unrestricted freedom. Here's the problem in a society that wants unrestricted freedom. You cannot have committed love. Committed love is the end of unrestricted freedom. And if you do not have committed love, you also have no way to build the social and inter intergenerational bonds that are possible only through committed love. There are certain social bonds and inter intergenerational bonds you cannot have except through committed love. And you can't have committed love in a society that wants unrestricted freedom. As Jesus people, we understand this. And so we need to think long and hard and work together. How can we show the world, how can we advocate for in our communities a better way against the lie of sexual freedom? Here's a third focal point, poverty. Last week my wife was in a grocery store in our little village. She noticed that one of the checkout lines was backed up because at the front of the line there was this little elderly lady. And she pulled out her food stamps because she was trying to buy food and it was early in the month and it should have been restocked, but the card was showing empty. And she was frantically digging around, it was $21. Her bill was $21. And she's frantically digging in her purse. She pulls out a bank envelope that has a $20 bill in it, but she's, it's not enough. And she, it's all, she, doesn't have, she needs that for something else and she's just frantically digging in her bag and she has nothing. She cannot pay a $21 bill. My wife walked up to her and said, basically, Grandmother, I got it. She said, no, it's too much. And then after Sarah paid the bill, she said, do you have children? I have things at my house. I'll give them to your children. These people exist amid our middle class wealth. Do you think Jesus cares that these people exist? How can we show that these people matter to us? Here's another one, another focal point. Racial alienation. Racial alienation. Beneath all the ugly political furor, there's so much ugly political furor about race relations. Just kind of cut through all that for a minute. Beloved, racial alienation exists. It exists. It exists in the church. If you don't see that, you're in a little bit of a bubble. Do you think that kind of racial alienation matters to the Lord who reconciled Jew and Gentile? And what would he have us to do about it? I know lots of Christians with very strong views about how racial tension is all the fault of those wrong-thinking people over there. Okay, but I have another question. Who has the wisdom for the ministry of reconciliation. That's what I want to know. And a final point of possible focus for communal effort in the communities of our city would be what I've come to call digital dependency. Because for our generation, here's the facts, say what you will about the facts, we are living in a generation for whom a single day without hours of digital uptake is unthinkable. And this is the question that preys on my mind. What needs to be talked about is what personal and relational development, what personal and relational development is simply prevented by that level of digital saturation? How personally and relationally can we no longer develop and we don't even notice it because of that much digital saturation? And I wonder what 
does a world, what is a world like in which pretty much everybody is missing all of that development? And how can we prepare ourselves and prepare others to navigate that world, which is now? It's interesting to me at the end of Revelation that as God has judged the harlot, that generation of organized national Israel that rejected and killed their Messiah, and God is, is going to sweep away the, that rebellious generation, and what he brings forth at the end of Revelation is the true bride, the bride of the Lamb, Jew and Gentile, the holy city Jerusalem. And listen to how this city is described as she bursts onto the scene. By the light of this city, the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The angel showed me the river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of that city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And I'll close with this question. Beloved, what if that picture is of Christ's bride, not only as she will be, but also as she is now, bringing forth leaves and fruit for the healing of the nations? What if that city is all of you? Amen. Make us that city which shines with your light, O Lord. Is your salt, light, and leaven in a needy generation. In Jesus we pray. Amen.